This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Friends, welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, September 25th, 2011. Uh, lots going on, uh, including the launch of uh, the new website I'll tell you about. Uh, I've got my new cowboy boots on. Uh, that my uh, director, Jalal Murray, insisted that I uh, I have when we were down in uh, Mississippi shooting the TV show. Quick story, uh, because I just retold this story to uh, George Janescu. So I've been workshopping this story for several weeks now. So it's now going to be debuted live on the radio. So these are, these, I've never owned a pair of cowboy boots in my life. Never even tried a pair on. The moment I slipped these babies on in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, fit like a glove, and I wore them for the rest of the trip, and it's like, keep in mind, this is like an 110-degree weather down there. I've, I will be buried in these boots. I would wear these boots to bed if the mighty Aphrodite would permit me to do so. So um, later on in that road trip, we're in, we're in, um, in, in Dallas, in Daly Plaza, and a, um, uh, an African-American gentleman uh, spots me across the street uh, on uh, the corner of, I guess, Elm and Commerce Street, and he runs across the street and he says, sir, he says, I was admiring your boots from across the street. He says, if I can tell you where you got those boots, would you permit me to shine your shoes? Would, can I get you a shoe, give you a shoe shine uh, for $5? And uh, I said, sure, sure, that's a good deal. Said, I'm thinking to myself, how is he going to know I got these boots in Hattiesburg, Mississippi? I mean, you think cowboy boots, you think Laredo, Texas, Hattiesburg. I've never even heard of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. How is he going to... He said, now, if I guess where you got those boots, you're going to be truthful, right? I said, of course, of course I will. I'll tell you. He said, you've got those boots on the bottom of your feet. Uh, I said, well, that's worth five bucks. There you go. So I got a shoe shine and... and uh, uh, he saw me a mile away, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, Victor Vigiani is uh, with us from Zealand News Network covering the UFO beat and uh, joins me every time in studio that we, uh, we go down that road. Victor Vigiani, 
welcome home. Welcome back. Great to be with you and flying alongside. And uh, and again, uh, I know you just recently lost your dad, so uh, um, we, we, I appreciate you coming in, first of all. And I know that's obviously weighing heavily on your mind, so uh, um, we've been thinking about you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, several of the people that are associated with the show uh, and people who do listen have expressed the same thing. And I do want to extend my gratitude to everyone who's... Uh, Sent out all the, the kind words and, uh, and and great thoughts. So, and actually, uh, it's it is sort of ironic that it works out this way. That my dad, in fact, was the person who mentioned to me years and years ago, uh, way before I even read a first book on uh, on UFOs. He had a UFO experience uh, on the street that we lived on in. Um, I guess it was in someplace in North York, the Bathurst and Lawrence area, in one hot summer night in July. He was sitting out in the front porch, this is probably 1942, pardon me, 1952 or so, and I was only just a young boy, just barely going to school, and I wasn't up at night, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and he said that he witnessed this huge, and he said huge, Victor, UFO, green, uh, almost fluorescent color green, come and hover over the house across the street, and he said it was just as big as the house, and just above the house, about 35 or 40 feet, um, uh, across the street from him, ab- above the house, and he said he could have thrown a brick at it, and it just winked out. It just went, shoo, it stayed there for maybe thirty seconds, and it was gone. And that's a long time to witness that thing, and uh, have your father tell you a story like that um, was is pretty incredible. And, my uh, word! It, yeah, it really, uh, really was a very important part of my life, and. Uh, and the old so boys, you come by it honestly. Yes, you're right. Yeah, heck, have your father tell you tell you a story like that? It's not a tall tale. It was uh, something that he experienced. When did how how old were you when he told you that story? Well, I was born in '48, so I think it was '52 when it happened. So I was about four four years he old. He told you when you were four four years old. Do you remember him telling you that? Oh or? yeah, he he um, he said I saw I'd heard my mom and him talking about it the the, the morning after, and then uh, several years later he repeated the story to me again. He said, I was up, I was sitting on the front porch, and it was a really hot night, and then this thing, and I remember them talking about it in the kitchen the next morning. And it was hot. It was one of those really blistering hot uh, summer evenings, and it was very humid, and um, and he had very clear recollections of it. So, I mean, that obviously, something like that, you don't forget, so that stayed with you throughout your adult life, mm-hmm. and, and would you attribute that conversation with your, 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 with your dad setting you on this path? Well, I think the seed was planted at the time, and I guess uh, you have to wait a certain number of years before that seed germinates and, and becomes real, and maybe you need uh, other catalysts in your life to bring that seed uh, uh, to some sort of fruition. Uh, but he definitely did plant the first ideas in my mind about what went on. And uh, I guess the books that I read in, this, in the early 70s began that whole process of uh, the, the compelling nature of this issue, and uh, it, um, it spurred me on. Well, Mr. Vigiani Sr., wherever you are, Ernesto, thank you. Thank Ernesto, you. Yes. Ernesto Vigiani. Yeah, yes. um, I, um, I owe you th- a thanks, because had you not seen that v- UFO and, and pass that on to Victor, Victor never would have uh, uh, probably um, you know, charted out on this course, and uh, I never would have made his acquaintance, and, and here we are. Right. You see how things are connect, interconnected? And I never met your father, but mm-hmm. I wish I had. There you go. All right. We, uh, we're going to check in with uh, Stephen Bassett here in uh, just a few moments. Uh, Stephen has always got something on the go. He is arguably 
wouldn't you say, Victor, the the leading advocate for ending the the the, uh, the UFO truth embargo? I would certainly say, in the United States, for sure. He is he's probably the leading advocate in a public forum, in a public public format. And Stephen makes his presence felt very, very strongly in the political scene right across the United States in many different ways. He ran for office. Uh, my goodness, I guess it was in the uh, just after the year 2000, or so he ran for public office in the Washington area. It wasn't a successful venture, but he made himself well known on that front. So uh, Stephen is one who gets his face right into the scene very quickly, and people in Washington know what Stephen Bassett stands for in terms of disclosure. And of course, uh, he organizes the annual uh, X Conference uh, event, uh, which was held the last couple of years at the uh, the press club, National Press Club in Washington, and now. Uh, when he uh, joins us uh, just after the break, he'll tell us about uh, his latest initiative, which is the Disclosure Petition. And uh, he is campaigning uh, to organize a, a petition to petition the President of the United States to get a formal acknowledgement uh, of the extraterrestrial presence here on Earth. So uh, we'll talk to Stephen about that. A little bit later in the show, round midnight, uh, Jerry Leonard... Um, I met Jerry down in Charlotte, North Carolina for a, an upcoming episode of the TV show, which, by the way, is uh, Wednesday the 28th of debut, so just a few days away, three days uh, and counting, uh, three days almost exactly, uh, Wednesday the 28th, and uh, that kicks off at 11 p.m. on Vision TV, check your local listings, it's on uh, Channel 60 on uh, if you're on Rogers, but if you're on Bell, it's somewhere else if you're on Shaw. Uh, and the first episode is on Roswell, the UFO crash, and Victor Vigiani, you figure prominently in that episode. I'm looking forward to seeing the program. And um, uh, that'll be followed by a, an old chestnut from season one. So it's for the full hour, a, a fresh episode from season two, from 11 to 11.30, and then uh, season one uh, uh, will be uh, featured at 11.30. And uh, before we take a time out here, let me also mention, we've launched a new website for the TV show, theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, it's been out there, but we've reformatted it, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way it looks. Uh, and from now on, whenever I want to refer you to the radio show here on AM740, I'll, I'll give you the website, theconspiracyshow.com, because you can get to the radio show website from there as well, the cons- theconspiracyshow.com. I hope you'll uh, check it out. All the, uh, the upcoming episodes for the TV show are there, and uh, the contributors and so forth. So um, have a look at that, and I uh, would uh, look forward to your feedback. One more thing before we go. I... Um, uh, recently heard from a, um, a, a, a woman out in uh, Oakville Way. She is a, uh, she's a chef uh, working at a, a culinary school. And she tells me that I have a, um, a, a young fan uh, named Vanessa. Vanessa Green, if you're listening, and I'm, I'm told that she listens faithfully every Sunday. Uh, and she has, imagine, a 16-year-old who knows about a- AM radio. My gosh, call the folks at Guinness <laughs> because this is a rarity. But we're, uh, I mean, we're delighted to have uh, a, a 16-year-old fan, or she's turning 16, I think, in a couple of days. So Vanessa Green, first of all, happy birthday. 16 is a huge milestone. So congratulations. Uh, and um, I understand that you've got a number of friends also that uh, listen to the show Sunday nights, and then you, uh, I guess, I don't know, over lunch, uh, at the school. Maybe you talk about what you heard on the, on the show. Uh, I tell you what we're going to do, Vanessa, because 16th is such a big deal and you're such a big fan of the show. 
I'm going to give you a special uh, backstage pass. I want you to come in and sit in on the radio show next Sunday. That's October the 2nd. You can bring mom and dad and uh, maybe a couple of... Uh, yes, she'll be sitting in your chair, right, where Victor Vigiani is. Boy, what an exciting offer, my goodness. So, uh, so Vanessa, if you're listening, I hope you're good for that because I'd love to have you come in. We'll wish you a happy birthday in person and um, have a few goodies here for you. And, of course, uh, your mom and dad are most welcome. And uh, if you've got um, maybe a brother and a, a, a best friend that are also uh, uh, interested in listening to the program, come on in and we'll uh, allow you to, uh, to, to listen to the show. Um, we'll get you on air. Maybe we'll get some, uh, some comments on what you think of it. We'll do a little panel discussion on what you've heard. So... Uh, we'll do that next Sunday, October the 2nd. And if you want, uh, Vanessa, I could call the principal of your school to tell him that you might be late on Monday morning. You would have some pull as, I a, have former, some pull, as, yes. as a former principal with the Toronto School Board. I could do that, yeah. That's a brilliant idea. Wow. All right. So, Vanessa Green, thank you so much uh, for listening to the show. It's great to know that uh, I have uh, a young, bright mind out there uh, staying up late, on a school night, uh, nonetheless, but uh, so a happy birthday to you, and uh, I look forward to meeting you next Sunday. All right, we'll uh, come back and uh, meet Stephen Bassett, who's no stranger to this program, and we'll learn all about the disclosure petition. Back with more here on AM 740. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoom Radio, AM 740. So imagine you're the uh, 44th president of the United States, the occupant of uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You're sitting there in the Oval Office and uh, your secretary or the chief of staff wanders in and plops down a sheet of papers. It's about thickness of the uh, the New York City uh, telephone directory and uh, affixed to this uh, uh, huge pile of papers is this we the undersigned strongly urge the president of the United States to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files from all agencies and military services relevant to this phenomenon. Imagine if that petition was signed by millions of Americans. Do you think that would have any impact? I would think so. Here to tell us more about the disclosure petition is a leading advocate for ending the 64-year government-imposed truth embargo regarding an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He's a political activist, lobbyist, commentator, the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group and the Extraterrestrial Phenomena Political Action Committee and the, uh, the founder and organizer of the annual X-Conference in Washington, 
Always a pleasure to have Stephen Bassett here on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Stephen. Hi, it's great to be with you, Richard. Uh, Victor Vigiani, of course, uh, in studio as well. Say hello to Victor. Of course. Yeah. All right. Guess Tell- where I'm at. Guess where I'm at. Uh, let me see. Uh, standing outside 1600 Pennsylvania? I don't know. <laughs> I, I am in Hollywood right now, oh. uh, in Hollywood and Vine, right, which is on the Walk of Fame. Uh, right down in the middle of the of the uh, well, the, the old center of, of of activity here. And the reason I'm here is there's a concert tonight uh, that I'll be going to right after the show, and it's called the Disclosure Concert. And it's part of a 3D music film festival that's been going on for four days, put on by the Dream Factory here. They're showing 3D films all day long. I went to see Green Lantern last night. Uh, pretty cool, definitely. Very cool graphics and, and special effects. And they're also having a lot of music acts. But tonight is, uh, there's a concert, a bunch, number of bands are playing. But it is a disclosure conference. It is a fundraiser for Dr. Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project. Wow. Uh, the, uh, the reason for this is because the Dream Factory's owner, head guy, is named Chris Crescitelli, Chris, Chris and he has been supporting the disclosure movement for years, uh, going way back and... and primarily connected to Dr. Greer. So uh, it's the first disclosure concert ever. It's in the center of Hollywood, in fact, near the, you know, some of the most famous landmarks here, Knickerbocker Hotel, Hollywood Divine. And uh, Greer's going to talk, and there'll be some other discussions and a lot of music. This has been promoted all over town. I, I, I say this just to give you a sense that, you know, some people think, is anything happening? Is we going anywhere? Is this moving forward? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let me tell you, I mean, this is the kind of thing that is happening, and you're going to see more of this as more young people get involved, as more celebrities get involved. Uh, so disclosure, again, is, is, is on its way, folks. Uh, uh, and this is just one more kind of, uh, 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 you know, idea, one more concept that, that uh, points to that. So... I'll be uh, in that concert here after we get done. And, and uh, you know, there have been, over, through the years, a number of prominent uh, members of the uh, artistic community, uh, particularly w- within the field of rock and roll. I'm thinking of guys like Sammy Hagar, who's a, a well-known uh, sort of a disclosure yeah. advocate and someone who's had a, uh, a UFO encounter. Of course, the late John Lennon, I believe David Bowie. So uh, it, it's time for these people to start coming forward and, and, and talking about these things. Well, I think that's going to happen. In fact, Hagar is more than just that. Hagar said in his autobiography, which is the first time he really got connected to this issue, just published not too long ago, that he's a contactee. Yeah. Has been since childhood. Uh, David Williams, a huge, uh, I mean, sorry, Robbie Williams, a huge star in uh, the UK. Big, big, he sold more records in the UK than anybody. Um, is, is interested in the issue. He's been looking at it. Uh, Peter Andre is hooked up with him. He's interested. Um, of course, Dan Aykroyd has been out front on this in mm-hmm. Hollywood for some time, uh, but it, we're right on the cusp of possibly a lot of celebrities jumping in here, and 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 where we're, what we're likely to see, and I think this is the next major development in exopolitics, is where I think very soon some pretty well-known people are going to come forward, and because they feel it's not going to be a problem for them, they don't feel that it's going to hurt them, uh, or they don't care anymore, whatever, and they're going to say, not, I saw a UFO once, because who hasn't, right? They're going to say, look, uh, I've been dealing with this phenomenon, I've been dealing with these entities since I was a child, 
and that is going to be a big deal. So that that is kind of one of the reasons I've been spending a lot of time in L.A. I'm doing a great deal of networking. Uh, uh, we're, we're really, there's a lot of people that I'm communicating with and getting involved with, and they're networking with each other. So we're trying to sort of build a, a platform here for, for some people to start coming forward. So that, that's a, a major thing going on. But, of course, the thing I'm most interested in right now, as you know, is the disclosure petition, which you just read. Well, I'll get into the petition. I just wanted to ask you very quickly, and Victor, I'll get Victor to jump in here in a second. Yep. I just, uh, you, you, you kind of teased us there, Stephen. You, you, do you have a, a, a line on who some of these prominent people might be? Can you, without divulging their names, obviously, we don't want to out them before they're ready, but can you give us some some hints as to yeah. the, the, the identity I of I would never out anybody, uh, uh, because that would just be wrong. Of course. And, and it, it, it's not what we want. There are rumors. There have always been rumors about certain musicians and so forth. I mean, the the, the parallel to to gay and lesbian celebrities is almost exactly uh, a match, right? Uh, they all went through the same thing. They really couldn't come forward. Uh, they couldn't talk about it. They had to have a guy of a secret life because they were afraid it would hurt their career. Pretty much the same thing here, but but I, but it's in 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 in, in, in one sense. But the fact is is that. Coming out and, and saying, "Look, I'm dealing with this ET issue," frankly, is is pr- not that big a deal anymore. I mean, most people are going to find, "Hey, you know, great, that's cool." Particularly if it's a younger celebrity, some of the young super- superstars, uh, some of the older crowd, maybe not. It's it's so it's less, I think, of a problem. Frankly, I think there are still problems for celebrities who come forward who have been in a closet and come forward and say, "I'm a gay or lesbian." I think we understand that, and, and that's going to be the, still that way for a while, but not on the ET thing. I think the barrier coming forward on this, on this issue as a contactee is, is dropping fast. And Hagar, of course, is one of the several people that have sort of crossed the, crossed the line here. As far as I can tell, it's not been a problem for Sammy. I don't think uh, Dan Aykroyd's uh, involvement and pronouncements on this field has been a problem for him. And as people see that, as they see that, hey, you know, uh, they're talking about this. It's the most incredible thing in the world today. Uh, being in contact with these entities may have been a problem for me, but still, it's an amazing thing. And as they see that people are not getting having much of a problem, they're going to start coming forward. And it's just eventually you're going to have, I don't know, you're going to have a lot. Uh, and, and I don't just mean celebrities in film or television. You could be sports figures. It could also be political stars, people that are well-known, possibly retired. So the contactee coming out thing is the next major development. In the meantime, we're going to continue to to find ways to put this issue in front of the leaders and create referenda for people to, to, to easily hook up with, right? In other words, give people an easy way to state their desires here. And a lot, a lot and of people... Yeah. yeah, Steve, a lot of people uh, mentioned to me recently... You know, they say, well, what's really changed in, a, in the disclosure process so far? Really nothing has happened. And my retort to them, generally speaking, is something like this uh, that's going on right now, you know, where you are in Hollywood. That was absolutely unheard of 10 or 12 years ago. And the kind of strides that oh, yeah. we've made uh, sort of are, are paving the way for that. And for we're making it okay for people of profiles uh, like Dan Aykroyd and, uh, and the others that, that you mentioned. We're making it okay mm-hmm. for them to talk about this kind of thing. So that kind Kind of stride is a huge one. Oh yeah, and, and most people do, are not aware of what's going on. Most, most people don't know about what's happening in other countries, file releases, witnesses coming forward. That that's our my job. 
and my colleagues, Josh. We're on top of this. We know what's going on. And we, and we, we put this information out. We go on shows and talk about it. But let's face it, the vast majority of people don't know this. And so for them, and, and, and until disclosure happens, nothing, nothing's happening. And I can appreciate that. That's what is, would be significant for them. They don't have time to worry about uh, or, or pay attention to the process. But I can tell you I am paying attention. And there is a great deal happening. And it is all moving forward uh, inexorably towards disclosure. The only thing that could derail it for a significant amount of time would be a major uh, bad event, uh, particularly a nuclear event, um, a serious war, perhaps uh, a major bioattack, something that would, would really send us off again into another 10 or 15 years of of craziness that that scares me worries me all the time which is why we need to get disclosure as quickly as possible all right um and 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 why the advocacy is important we really need to get to the other side of this this transition we need to get to the post-disclosure world i think in that world with that knowledge being universal pretty much around the world i think that uh i think we have a better chance of dealing with some of the the nastiness that may still be heading our way, some of the problems that may, may turn up, uh, than we, we, we would now, pre-disclosure, when we're still operating under you know ideas and protocols and concepts which are really outdated 500 years ago. Okay, let's uh, come, come back on the other side and get uh, into uh, some more details on the disclosure petition. And uh, Stephen Bassett will tell us more on the other side. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network in studio. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, AM 740 Zoom Radio. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin from Zuma Radio, AM 740. That is a, a song called Stolen Cookies, and it was uh, written for this uh, program uh, by a band called Who Stole the Cookies. Uh, so uh, thanks to Nick Soterio, uh, for uh, uh, and the band for composing that, uh, recording it, producing it, and uh, sending it my way. I'm very honored uh, that you would, uh, would do that. And we have another song um, that was uh, written and composed for this show. We'll hear at the tail end of the program called Nothing is Concealed, and that actually has lyrics, and uh, so we'll let you in on that uh, just before we turn out the lights before 1 a.m. So again, thank you for that, uh, that track from Who Stole the Cookies, a, uh, a Toronto band uh, 
if you get a chance uh, to see them uh, live at one of the, the clubs or the pubs around town, please do. They're, uh, they're a lot of fun, a lot of energy. And uh, I'll um, uh, hook up to their website, uh, Who Stole the Cookies. Uh, they have a Facebook page. I'll hook up to that on theconspiracyshow.com as soon as we can. All right. Uh, Stephen Bassett is uh, joining us from Hollywood, California, where he's uh, attending a Disclosure concert. But we're here to talk to him about the Disclosure uh, petition. Now, Stephen, you had this a million facts on Washington campaign that um, that's been going on uh, since just before Obama took uh, um, uh, took over in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you make the decision to go from the million facts uh, campaign to this uh, disclosure petition? Well, let, let's let me let me give you, your your listeners the background here. The way we know. The principal way we know what the general public thinks about this issue is through polls, anonymous polls conducted by Reuters, Reuters, CNN, Time, Ipsos. Uh, there have been quite a few, and they, they've been relatively regular going back well into the early 90s. And what we know, and some of these polls have been international, is that about 50% of the industrialized nation, when people are asked anonymously in a poll, do they think ETs are involved in the UFO phenomena? They say yes. And, and 80% or more in these polls consistently say uh, that the government's not telling the truth. Recent polls by Ipsos seem to indicate that the percentage of people in the world that think that the ET phenomenon is real, that they're, they're ETs engaging us, could be as high as 50%, certainly 40%. And we're talking now about 2 to 2.5 two billion people. But understand, these are anonymous polls. What is needed, or what was needed, is a way to 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 put people on record behind the issue. That's more powerful. In other words, referenda. Now, one way was the main facts in Washington. It's still there. The site's still active, and people were sending letters and faxes to the president. And then now, the the, the fundamental target is the White House press corps. So they're sending letters in. Most of them are signed. They're kind of putting their name behind it. They're saying, "Look, we want you to do something about this." Okay, fine. And that's still ongoing. Then, in July the 1st, PRG launched another a project, which is designed to do, again, what I was talking about, and that is the World Disclosure Day, worlddisclosureday.org. Designate a day as the day each day of the year to focus on this issue, hold events, what have you, just like Earth Day, Disclosure Day, and the date was set for July the 8th. It's tied into the Roger Ramey press conference on July the 8th, 1947. Now, we've got about 45 people, that have, and, and, and you can endorse World Disclosure Day at the website, worlddisclosureday.org. About 4,500 people from around the world, and anybody in the world can endorse it, and organizations have uh, endorsed this. They've got their name, their city, their state, or their country. This is, this is building a, how would you say, presence. A, we're putting names at behind the issue, not anonymous polling but names, they're a bit of a referendum. There is no limit to how many people can endorse World Disclosure Day. And uh, it's only been out a couple of months. It's going to get more promotion. I'm promoting in all the shows I'm doing for the petition. And so we hope to build up numbers there. I believe if World Disclosure Day can get up to about 100,000 endorsements, it'll start generating some serious news. All right, so that was launched on July the 1st. Fully in play, sites operational. You can go see the signatures. But then... A short while ago, I learned about a month ago that the White House, as part of their open government pronouncements and initiatives that they had talked about in the campaign, was going to make a significant move. They were going to create a petition section on the White House website called We the People. 
Now, they did something similar to this during the transition period after the election, 77 days before the inauguration. It was put up on change.org. You could put issues up. About hundreds of issues were put up there. People could vote on them, and they would might take a look at them. That was all fine. That was during uh, the transition. This is three years into the administration of a president that's in deep, deep trouble, all right, and searching for uh, a way to gather the public together, to find a way to, to lead again. And so they put these petitions, allowed these petitions to be published, and so they gave us 30 days, roughly, to get the petition together in the pre-promotion, and then as of the 22nd of September, they opened it up. Well, I put the disclosure petition up immediately. I'd already done considerable pre-promotion, uh, and uh, uh, we're already up to 4,600 signatures. It's one of 50 petitions that are up there right now. There are, there's one other disclosure petition up there as well. It's getting some signatures. That's fine. And there may be a third that's going to show up. Um, the way this is working is that any petition that receives 5,000 signatures will be actually reviewed by White House staff and then passed on to the appropriate entities for consideration, and there will be a formal response. Fine and dandy. Okay, good. Um, but that's not what's on my mind. What's on my mind is this. The way this petition is set up, you sign, you have to, you have to register with your email address with the site. You get a uh, password back, and then you log in, and then you can sign all the petitions you want. Right? And uh, when you sign, they, they, they list first name and last initial. And, and depending upon what you put in the registration, they may have your town there, they may not. More importantly, the way it's set up, all, uh, people around the world, uh, other nations are not blocked. We've got people that are signing this petition from all over the world. And so what, what's the math here? There's, there's over 2 billion people on this planet that anonymously will tell you that they know there's an ET presence here. How many can we get to sign this petition? Well, a lot if we can get it viral on the Internet. And that's what I've been doing. An international press, press release has gone out. I've hit, of course, my mail list. It's been posted to over 100 groups on, on Facebook that are interested in these issues, as well as my six Facebook pages, Twitter, uh, and uh, uh, an update. Another press release will go out, an international press release will go out soon. And uh, the message is clear. Sign it, but that's, that's only a little bit of influence. Spread the link to 100 people. So make, make it viral. If something... If enough links are spread, whether it's to a YouTube video or to something else on the Internet, and you reach a certain critical mass, and I don't know what that critical mass is, things just take off. Uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenon. I call it virality. Uh, it's why there are videos on YouTube with 60 million views. By the way, there is a UFO video on, on YouTube with 36 million views. There's a number with 16, 18, 14, 10, and 9 million views. And so the question is, if somebody's willing to go watch a two-minute video about UFOs on YouTube, uh, would they be willing to, to take about the same amount of time and sign a petition that's actually on the White House website? So what we have here is a golden opportunity to pile up signatures on that thing. Now, we'll never catch up with the marijuana petition. Every time there's a petition, the marijuana legalization always has the most signatures. I think they've got 30-some, 5,000. No problem. The point is, is that there is no limit to how many people can sign that disclosure petition on the White House website. It could be 10 million. There is no limit. 
the only thing that, that, that will limit how many signatures is how the willingness of people to spread the link, which is the link is up on my website. It's, it's, uh, it, it's at the disclosurepetition.info site, which is kind of the home base for this petition. It's not where the petition is signed, but it's, you can get the link to the White House there, disclosurepetition.info. Right. However, if you, you know, I, I, we're moving pretty fast on this. If you Google disclosure petition with quotes, you get tons of pages right away about it, including the White House website. So it's extremely easy to find. It takes a couple of minutes to sign. And you read the petition. It, it's as straightforward as it could be. Read it again. Read it again. It's simple. Please. Read it again. And you got it in front of you? Okay, let me, I'll do it. Okay. We, you the undersigned... We, the undersigned, strongly urge the President of the United States to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files from all agencies and military services relevant to this phenomenon. Let's get Victor Vigiano. Let me tell you something, Steve. I went there uh, day before yesterday, and uh, it is very, very simple to register. Just a matter of going on the site and uh, placing just a little bit of information uh, within the little, uh, little dialogue boxes there that they have and uh, you're mm -hmm. off to the races. Now, you can just imagine the number of people that are listening to this program right now, and uh, I can just imagine if they huh. tell all the people and it spreads, as, it's, as you say, go viral, this thing could uh, almost shut the site down if it, uh, that many people get going well, on it. It's, you know, it, 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 you know, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, you've got MySpace, you've got blogs, you've got email lists, you've got people's websites on, on it, it, disclosure petition.info. I've got a whole bunch of banners there. You can just, webmasters can grab the banner and put the White House link on it. So, so there's really no barrier. You know, we know, look, if somebody doesn't think there's, the way that thing is structured, right, it's simple. If you don't think there's an extraterrestrial presence engaging this, right, you don't, you don't want to sign that. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect anybody that didn't feel that way. But we, we already know from the polling, there may be two to three billion people on this planet that privately know that. Are they willing to put their first name and last initial on a petition, right? It's not exactly high exposure. I mean, it's not exactly how people are going to know quite who you are and, and, and tell the, the, the Obama administration that. But more importantly, the whole world is going to be watching. If those numbers get up there, if we get up in the 100,000, 300,000 range on that in the next 30 days, that is an international news story. And if it gets any press, the press will just generate more signals. So you're looking for more than so 5,000, aren't you? You're looking for many, well, many more. Yeah, yeah. five thousand guarantees are going to be going to get a response from the administration. I don't care about that. They can mm -hmm. blow it off easy. Mm -hmm. But 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 five hundred thousand? That's a that's a story. That's news. And so theoretically, there is no limit. Do, do, do people out there want the truth on this, or do they want the government to continue to have a truth embargo in place for the next ten, twenty, thirty years? Do they want to continue to 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 live in this sort of bifurcated reality? More importantly, are they concerned about the massive secrecy that's going on, the lying that's going on in government and in all areas, the decline and dysfunction of government, the lack of trust? All of this can start getting turned around if the government starts telling the truth. But the government is probably not going to tell the truth unless you demand it to tell the truth. What comes out of this? In, in, in yeah. your, your best-case scenario, uh, what comes uh, out of this scenario? Is it, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how petitions work in the United States. Does it result in an executive order from a president? Uh, uh, that goes out to the various uh, uh, government departments. What's the best case scenario? No, 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 no. What it, what it, no they're not. They're not stupid. They, they, they are trying to engage the public. This is a political campaigning going on here. 
But they have committed that they will review all petitions. They will actually have staff review all petitions with 5,000 or more signatures, and that they will then go to the appropriate entities within the administration for an appropriate response. Now, if some petition triggers a, an executive order, well, that will be a big news story, right? So, so uh, you know, 5,000 signatures and the government's going to make a move on disclosure? Of course not. But, again, they have set this platform up, right? They have handed it to us. They, 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 you know, they've said, look, you got a million signatures? Yeah, we, can, we can put those on our server, right? And so the people have an opportunity here. It's, it's unprecedented. Uh, to put how many signatures, how many people can take two minutes and go to the White House and, and, and say, look, I, I want disclosure, I want those files released. And it's, it's a strong statement. The government can come back and say, look, we'll, we'll acknowledge the ET presence, but we can't release all the files. I could work with that. In other words, you've you got to establish a negotiating platform here. Well, our platform is we want you to immediately acknowledge the extraterrestrial presence and immediately release all UFO files in, in military and government agencies. Now, if they want to come back with a counterproposal, I'm down with that. But still, we have to have the signatures. You know, can we at least get as many signatures as the people that want to legalize marijuana? Not that I'm against that. I think it's probably a good thing. I hate the drug war. But, you know, this is a pretty big issue here. There's a lot at stake. The world's uh, future in the 21st century may very much ride on, on, on when we disclose and it, how soon we disclose and get over this issue. Is there any link and, between... And they've created a petition that they didn't block the rest of the world. See, they could, have, they could have structured it so only Americans. I mean, it would have been tricky, but they might have done it where only Americans could sign this. But no, anybody can sign it. And that's right, because let's face it, the U.S. US government's policy on the extraterrestrial, going all the way back to the 40s, it's had huge implications for the rest of the world, hasn't it? And so the rest of the world should care what we do about this, should care about any technology we've sequestered behind the truth embargo that they could change the equation, should care if secrecy is getting out of control in this country, should care if, if uh, uh, there is an ET presence, but there's no engagement of it by the universities, uh, there's no funding of the work, the Congress is in the dark. Uh, there are a lot of countries out there that also, of course, know that there's an ET presence. And so the fact is, is that the U.S. did disclose. These other countries would follow suit almost immediately. And so there's an opportunity for people around the world to, 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 to make a clear statement to Washington. Do it. Right? But remember, other countries will be, go will be seeing this. They will go to the WhiteHouse.gov website. They'll see this. And so if there's a lot of signatures on this petition, it's also sending a message to other countries, U.K., Canada, France. Germany, Russia, China, that, you know, yeah, there's people that are willing to put their name behind this. They're, they're willing to sign on that this is true and we want this information. So what can I say? Great yeah. opportunity, but it is, it is, I've done, I will do all the media I can, and that's a lot. I will send out international press releases. There will be several more. I've got graphics up. I've done all my social media, but that's about as far as I can go. We don't have budgets where we can buy billboards in New York or run ads on television. We don't have that kind of money. We've never had that kind of money. But, you know, the, the social networks are free. There's 750 million people as of last month on Facebook. 750 million, right? Yeah, I'll take a million. Just give me a million signatures. When a million signatures on that petition would be a major international news story. 
it would go all over the world, and every time somebody read it, there'd be more signatures, and the upper limit would be hard to even predict. Uh, right? Ste- Stephen, on, Stephen, Steve, just want to ask you for a second. Um, you, you, you mentioned that you're at the Disclosure uh, concert now, and uh, you said that the kind of um, signing mechanism that's involved in the petition is just a first name and a last initial. Um, irrespective of that, would there be any of these high-profile individuals that you would be lobbying to somehow get their name in front uh, of this petition and be recognized in a way so that others of their profile might come forward? I have posted requests on Muse's website, Robbie Williams, Peter Andres, Dan Aykroyd's, Shirley McLean's. I've posted, you know, requests that they consider endorsing this on their Facebook pages. Uh, a couple of those people are on my mail list. I'm encouraging other people to do the same, right? In other words, are you a fan of Robbie Williams? Ask him if he endorsed the disclosure petition, Right. You know, if one, I'm good, my car. Uh, you know, if, if a star like Robbie Williams were to go on a radio or television show and say, look, I'm, I, I'm invo- I like that disclosure petition, I've signed it, I, I want my fans to sign it, uh, it would be huge, absolutely huge. So Muse, Aykroyd, Peter Andre, Robbie Williams, Shirley MacLaine, any of these uh, could come forward at, at any moment and say, look, uh, this is a good deal, sign that petition. Will it happen? I don't know. But I know that, you know, there's millions of people out there on Facebook, and they could all post on their sites. You know, we have, the, you know, as you know, Victor and Richard, we have the, the greatest networking power the human race has ever seen. But what hasn't happened quite yet is we're not using it for our own benefit. We're not using it to get what we want as peoples, as societies. We're still letting big money corporations win all the fights, buy all the votes, buy all the candidates, and we've got this way to be heard and a way to put our names behind our issues, but we don't do it yet. We're still not on board with this. All right, let me. eventually we will. All right, Stephen, let me take a quick time out, come back, and we'll um, follow up. A few more questions remain. Uh, I'd like to know, when we come back, whether or not the wording might potentially back the president into into a corner. Maybe that was by design. You want him to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence. Can the president do that? We'll find out when we come back. Stephen Bassett from the Paradigm Research Group and Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at one 866 740 Four seven forty. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty. Two hours, 20, sorry, two days, 23 hours, 11 minutes, and two seconds, Mark, until a season two, the season two debut of The Conspiracy Show on TV, nationwide on Vision TV. That's 11 p.m. Wednesday, September the 28th, 11 p.m. Eastern, and uh, the, uh, the season two kicks off uh, beginning with the Roswell UFO crash, which again, Victor Vigiani in studio it plays a prominent role, and um, that will be followed by... Uh, repeat from season one, and then it's every weeknight until uh, the end of the uh, uh, the run of the series uh, for season two. That is, so Wednesday, the twenty eighth of September, eleven p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. Check local listings. 
looking forward to that. And also, uh, we've relaunched the conspiracyshow.com website. Brand new format, and I think it looks pretty good. So uh, all your information there on uh, on upcoming episodes, and you can link to the radio show there as well. All right, Stephen Bassett stays with us for a few moments yet, and then at midnight we'll be joined by Jerry Leonard to talk about Lyme disease and whether or not it may have been weaponized in a bioweapons lab. Um, I was asking you about the wording uh, of the um, of the petition, asking the president to formally acknowledge. That's pretty. Those are pretty heavy words. Formally acknowledge. Is that going to paint the president into a corner? And do you care? No, I don't care. Uh, disclosure is the is the goal of the disclosure movement. It always has been, and we haven't really accomplished much until we get it. Without disclosure, not much else can happen. Um, so, but here's here's the beauty of this. See. Last night, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure that everybody that works inside government has, has a computer, right? And so uh, even though the president – I do not think the president of the United States today could, could, could simply trigger disclosure on his own. With, without the, the cooperation and agreement of the National Security Agency committees that manage this issue, if they, if they were not on board, I don't think he could do it. I think the risk would be just too enormous. Without those committees on board, it's possible some of the other nations wouldn't follow suit. It could be a disaster. And it just would be bad policy and bad politics. So, and so the president can't trigger it on his own. He's got to have the cooperation and the agreement of the, 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 the managing committees that work on this, that manage this issue and have since, it's in, since the, the 40s and 50s. But here's the great thing. You know, all those people that work, you know, all the, all the intelligence guys, all the military guys, all the people working in underground facilities, they all have computers. They can all go to the White House website and look at the petition. And, and if the petition gets a lot of signatures, they're going to know it. And if the media covers it, they're going to read those articles. And so this message that a, a very large number of petitions sends is not just to the president. It's to everybody that goes to that site. And that includes the entire military intelligence complex. Uh, and so, uh, again, you see what we're doing is we're really speaking to the entire government. It's the people saying, we, we are, as, 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 as the information on the petition says, because there's an information paragraph there. We have a right to know, and we can handle the truth. And that's all you're saying. We, we, tell us the truth about the universe we live in, please. Is no, that I, We can handle it. Is the president formally acknowledging it more important than the release of the documents? Yes. Absolutely. The disclosure is the key. Uh, I expect the government will be... Look, the demand for documents and, and information will just immediately explode. There's no question. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not playing a game here. They know this. I'm not telling them they don't know. That is a fundamental statement of the people. We want acknowledgement of the ET presence. We want the information about it, which is what the documents represent. Now, the government may say, look, we'll t- we are going to acknowledge the ET presence, but we can't give you all this information. There's too many national security implications. And we can debate that. I mean, we can have a debate. But we need to take a fundamental position out here. But you know you, you you don't get you don't get results without having a clear goal, right? And 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 being ambiguous or agnostic. Do you want disclosure or not? Do you want the information or not? And then if the government wants to negotiate with you about it, fine. But the current position of the, of the government is there's nothing to negotiate. There's no ETs. There are no documents. There's been no truth embargo. It's all a figment of many millions of people's imagination, which is why. People don't trust the government anymore. Every day you hear another story about how trust in government has plummeted to a new low. 
Uh, what happens when nobody trusts government at all? I, I bet you it won't be pretty, right? It's not going to go well. In fact, nothing is going well. We have got to get back in the truth business. If the government doesn't do that, there are going to be enormously bad consequences. And there's only one way back to the truth business. It's not learning how to lie better. It's to tell the truth. You mentioned you the, tell it often enough, and people start to trust you again. Yeah, yeah, but you mentioned Stephen the just a few minutes ago about the intelligence community that's controlling this whole thing, not necessarily the president. Um, well, managing, uh, managing, managing it exactly. Yeah, managing the whole idea behind the uh, the embargo. Uh, what right. if um, that that intelligence agency were to meet up with a huge groundswell of media uh, frenzy about this? Would would that kind of media frenzy, or even just sort of the viral nature of what you're hoping for over the internet, be sufficient enough for this massive management body, this organization's can that's really kind of um, you know, underpinning the, uh, the the cover up? Would they be affected by this, or they just going to say, who the hell are you guys? Forget about it. Oh, let me rephrase this. Look, I, I believe, and, and a lot of my colleagues agree, that the consensus within the, the intelligence community or the management community is, is to probably move forward disclosure. They're just not quite sure how to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a complicated, tough decision. Uh, so, uh, and the other thing is that there are any number of things that could tri- trigger a media frenzy. That's one of the reasons disclosure is so vulnerable. I mean, I could just list a whole number of things that that if they were to take place tomorrow. I'm not talking about ETs landing on the White House lawn. I'm saying there's any number of things that could happen that would suddenly just trigger a media storm. And the the truth embargo is so weak now, it could not withstand a media storm focused on this issue. It could not. There's plenty of press being written about the issue. There's plenty of articles being written. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about a media frenzy. Everybody knows what that is. And if one gets kicked off by any number of things, it could be a pronouncement from some head of a state or a comment by a former Secretary of Defense. It could be a reporter deciding to get real serious about this and asking a couple of key questions at the right time to the right person in the Obama administration, and on and on and on and on. Anything The media is ready, right? They're not... They're not you know, running to get that that hook, but but they're ready for it. So when it lands in their lap, I think they're going to jump on it. Well, so the truth embargo could could go at any time. But it, you're right, a media frenzy could trigger it. But it's not like that's what would drive the uh, uh, the military intelligence management committees to to do it. What would happen is, well, they, they it wouldn't be to be driven. It's just that. Once the questions started being asked, once yeah. once once it started to come out, they would probably quickly go to the, the president. They would say, "Look, look, uh, we've got to move now. This thing is now coming down. Uh, we've got to disclose. Got to get it done. Let's do it orderly. Let's get it done quickly. Something like that." Well, I can tell um, you. I can tell you up here, Stephen. I can yeah. tell you up here in Canada, the numbers of reporters that I've been speaking to privately behind the scenes, they are acknowledging this thing. In, in many more ways than I've ever seen or heard before. I'm talking about reporters for the Toronto Star and for the National Post. And exactly what you're saying, they are ready for this stuff, but there's just something missing that's going to help that trigger to be pulled to create that impetus behind the editor saying, listen, you guys, here's what I want you to cover tomorrow in the paper, and it'll blow everybody away. Yeah, there's been a 64-year truth embargo. They still perceive considerable risk to their careers. But I can assure you there's a very, very large number of reporters who privately know this is, this is true. That doesn't mean that they've been given a tour of Area 51. They just figured it out. They're not smart. They're not stupid people. They're smart people. So a very large number know it's true. And so if, if, if somehow the, the, 
the cat is out of the bag or it's clear that this story is now in play, uh, it will be unlike anything you've ever seen. I mean, we've seen some huge media frenzies. It'll be at the level of those, if not greater, and the embargo will just blow apart. Uh, so, again, our job, the job of the advocates is to keep the issue in front of the people, keep it in front of the media, keep it in front of the politicians. And the peti- this petition is perfect because it's on the White House website, so it's definitely in front of the administration. Obviously, that's a pretty well-known website. Anybody can go there and look at it. You, you can look at the petitions without registering. You can, you don't have to register. You only have to register to sign them. And so, anybody in the world can go to the go to the White House website and see how many signatures they are. Right. So we have a perfect way to send a message to the entire world. How many people want the truth of this out now, and, and not 20 years from now? And the way to do that, they can uh, go onto your website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, and right there in bold red letters, right on the homepage, sign the disclosure yeah. petition now. Just click on that. You know, it might. Google what it, disclosure petition. Google, Google disclosure petition. You'll get to the link. It's a real short link. It's like it's it's wh.gov forward slash. Uh, small G, capital C K. You know the thing is, uh, Stephen, uh, uh, you're, you're in. I'm not sure <laughs> you're in. You're in Hollywood tonight. What What might happen is, let's say, even if you don't get the big, big numbers on the petition, and let's hope that you do. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if if the media can pick up on a name on there, let's say someone, you know, uh, not that this this has happened to this person. But let's say someone like Cheryl Crow or or uh, uh, you know Beyonce or someone like that happens to sign that petition. That's all the media needs. That's all well, the media yeah, needs. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't know because it would be first name, last initial. Now, if she were to go on our website or Twitter or blog yes. or something and say, I've signed this petition, that would be big. But let me point out, on World Disclosure Day, at worlddisclosureday.org, those signatures are full names. In other words, we're asking for first and last name. We put up the city and the state, no address, no email address, and then our, or the country if it's from out of the U.S., so I am watching that. If any celebrity endorser would come in, I would check back on it and ask for permission to put them into the the, the endorsements of note, note, note section. We've already got a few people in that section. And so as, as regard to the endorsements of World Disclosure Day, we, we are, we're set up to highlight uh, immediately any celebrity or, or endorsements of note. So, I, I, you know, I'm hoping that a Dan Aykroyd or Robbie Williams will come out and not only, you know, endorse the disclosure petition, but endorse World Disclosure Day, right? Uh, just like they might endorse Earth Day. All of this is possible. Remember, these things have only been out for, well, in one case, uh, four days, and World Disclosure Day has been out for a couple of months. So, but, but they're there. They are, they are referenda platforms that if people want to spread the links to them, we can gather signatures all day long. It is up to the people. Do they want the truth, and is it worth spreading some links? And doing a little networking to build a uh, what, what might be a viral blowout, right? So that if you know, instead of if nine million people will go on YouTube and watch a hoax video, though some of them are pretty damn good hoaxes, by the way, uh, and, and they don't they don't go to watch that video on YouTube because it's a hoax. They go there because they're thinking maybe it's real, right? If nine million people are willing to spend the time to go and do that. Would 9 million people be willing to go and endorse World Disclosure Day and sign the disclosure petition? That's because so. if they did, I assure you, that would be huge. All right, Stephen. Um, best of luck with that. We'll check in with you periodically, and uh, let's hope it, uh, it goes viral, as you say. Stephen Bassett, thank you. All my friends in Canada, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, Victor.
Well, let's uh, let's see where it goes. Yes, and I know there are um, at least two reporters out there that I've that I've spoken with um, in the past who um, feel that this the time is ready for this, and they're just waiting for permission from their editors to go forward with it. And uh, something like this, I think, is a great opportunity. All right, we the undersigned strongly urge the President of the United States to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files from all agencies and military services rele- relevant to this phenomenon. If you'd like to sign this petition, uh, you could either petition, you could either Google uh, disclosure petition, or you can go to uh, Stephen's uh, website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, paradigmresearchgroup.org. And uh, right there in bold letters on the on the homepage, sign the disclosure disclosure petition now. Sign the disclosure petition now, and that takes you to the uh, 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 WhiteHouse.gov petitions uh, website. All right. On the other side, uh, physicist, researcher, author Jerry Leonard, the man who penned the book uh, Hitler is Winning, and also his other great book, The Perfect Assassin, will be here to tell us about. Lyme disease, the Lyme disease conspiracy, no less. Back with more here on AM740. Where there's smoke, there's the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Okay, lots going on the program tonight. New website, season two of The Conspiracy Show, just around the corner. Yours truly with a brand new pair of cowboy boots that he's thoroughly enjoying. Victor Vigiani just uh, ushered himself out of the building. We thank Victor. Stephen Bassett, of course, with the uh, disclosure petition. What else? Happy birthday wishes to uh, Vanessa Green, who's uh, listening at home, I'm sure, along with her friends. And uh, Vanessa will be here on the program next Sunday night, sitting in for her birthday present. And um, right now, we're going to discuss something that uh, it's, it's most disturbing uh, there are untold millions of Lyme disease sufferers. Many of them may have it and not know it. It's uh, difficult to diagnose. Many doctors, are, I, I believe, doctors aren't even allowed to diagnose Lyme disease. Uh, and and uh, many are not allowed to treat it as such. I, uh, I had a, um, uh, a magazine uh, publisher on the, uh, on the program, I think last year, uh, just after a documentary on Lyme disease came out. I think it's called Under Our Skin. And she told me something 
that just blew my mind. She told me that the health minister at the time, when, when she asked him uh, through, I guess, uh, letter-writing correspondence, she asked him to, you know, to divulge numbers on the number of sufferers and so forth of Lyme, Lyme disease here in Canada. He told her it was a national security issue. It couldn't be divulged, which I found very interesting. Uh, my next guest is uh, joining us to discuss his investigation into the possibility that Lyme disease, this tick-vectored virus, may be a bio-warfare agent. We're also going to learn about the Plum Island open-air tick experiments. Now get this, in his book Lab 257, Michael Carroll writes that Plum Island presents more vectors for the spread of infectious diseases than perhaps anywhere else. Ticks have a long and varied menu droves of small foraging birds, a tantalizing wild deer habitat, thousands of mice and rats for tick larvae and nymphs to feed on. Plum Island is a Lyme disease tinderbox. And according to Carol, Plum Island recruited and worked closely with a Nazi biowarfare expert who had operational experience with insect-based biowarfare delivery vectors. If you're, if you're suffering from Lyme disease, if you know someone who has Lyme disease, you'll want to listen in on the next hour. And now we welcome physicist, researcher, author of The Perfect Assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, the CIA and Mind Control, and Hitler is winning, Jerry Leonard. Jerry, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Very well, thank you. How did you uh, uh, get um, interested or engaged in investigating Lyme disease? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I'd written several books, uh, all on the topic of unethical medical testing by the government. And then, uh, unfortunately, I was bit by a tick here in North Carolina about four years ago and started to uh, suffer the neurocognitive symptoms of Lyme disease, which I had no idea even existed. Um, and it's not even supposed to exist in North Carolina. But I started to uh, exhibit some of the classic symptoms and... Uh, for example, memory loss and short attention span, that kind of thing. And uh, I had recently seen a friend of mine go through something very similar, and that's the only reason I knew to suspect Lyme disease, because I saw the tick bite. I was very fortunate. A lot of people don't. And I watched the sight of the tick bite very closely for the, uh, the uh, bullseye rash, and it never developed, which I've subsequently found out is fairly common. Only uh, maybe 30 to 40% of the people that are bitten actually get bullseye rash. Um, which is a big problem because you start to suffer these symptoms, which can be uh, fairly generic. They're not necessarily specific to Lyme disease, and you don't know what's going on. You just feel like you're losing your mind. So that kind of I fell into my own nightmare with respect to the uh, ongoing government experimentation that I had been researching. And come to find out, you mentioned Michael Carroll's book, uh, which does an excellent job of uh, going over all the problems at Plum Island and uh, at least three epidemics have started from there, and they had a very bad safety record. And they are 20 miles across the Long Island Sound from Lyme, Connecticut, which is where the epidemic began in the 1970s. When it uh, began, in, in the mid-70s, I believe it was, in, in Lyme, Connecticut, hence the name. Right. Uh, I mean, how was, it, how was it being reported on? Because now, you know, the, the mainstream medical establishment pretends it doesn't exist. Governments pretend it doesn't exist. How was it being reported on back then? Well, it's really due to uh, one particular lady who in my book is a hero named Polly Murray. Um, this is in a very well-to-do 
part of Connecticut, um, she started to notice that she and her family and then her whole block and her whole neighborhood and her whole town started coming down with this bizarre form of uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, um, in some cases, and adults get it as well. But it was clustered uh, in specific areas, and she started to make a lot of noise. She started calling various health departments, et cetera, and nobody would listen to her. And finally, she made enough noise that uh, they had to listen to her. So she got a meeting set up at Yale, um, you know, one of the premier universities in the world, and started meeting with these epidemiologists, and, of course, she was delighted that someone was finally listening to her because she had been trying to get uh, help for the people in her neighborhood and her town. And uh, eventually, a doctor named Alan Steer took over the investigation from uh, the one that she had just started on her own. And uh, he basically ran the investigation into the ground, and Lyme disease sufferers have paid the price ever since. Alan Steer is the founder of the so-called Steer Camp of Lyme disease, um, which has created a whole mythology around the disease, which is what keeps doctors from diagnosing it and is also what keeps patients from getting treated effectively for it. For, for example, he started out uh, in the early days, in the 70s, nobody knew what it was. They didn't know that it was vectored by a tick, for example, and they didn't know what was causing it. Well, it turned out it was a bacterium, and uh, it was spread by a species of ticks called Ix Ixodes ticks. Um, Alan Steer is credited with discovering that, and... Uh, of course, he didn't know it was a bacterium, and he claimed for years that it was actually caused by a virus. Now, that's a key point, because if a disease is caused by a virus, then you don't treat it with antibiotics, and the disease can be uh, propagated in perpetuity, which is basically what happened. And Alan Steer was very, very reluctant and very insulting to people that other doctors, in fact, tried to tell him that this disease could be treated and mitigated somewhat by uh, antibiotics, but he, he just ridiculed them and refused to believe it. turns out... He was actually monitoring the blood of some of his patients, and he was developing a vaccine. So he was actually monitoring the immune response in untreated controls, and his employer at the time, which was Yale, which happened to be working hand-in-glove with Plum Island, uh, were, was patenting various components of the, the, the uh, bacteria and subsequently developed the first Lyme disease vaccine and licensed it to a major pharmaceuticals company. It turned out the vaccine was a complete disaster and induced the very symptoms it was supposed to prevent, and they had to pull the vaccine in a hail of lawsuits. But Alan Steer also led that vaccine effort, so he was there from the beginning monitoring the disease, ridiculing the use of antibiotics, claiming it was caused by a non-existent virus, and uh, subsequently is the one in charge of the, uh, the vaccine effort licensed by uh, his employer. Jerry Leonard is with us, uh, the author of uh, uh, The Perfect Assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, The CIA and Mind Control, and Hitler is Winning, here talking about the Lyme disease conspiracy, if you will. True or false, Jerry, I have heard that Lyme disease is the fastest-growing infectious illness in certainly in the United States uh, after AIDS. Actually, it's uh, exceeded AIDS. It's the uh, fastest-growing vector or an infection in the country, and, in fact, it accounts for more than 95% of the vector-borne cases of illness in the country, and it has surpassed AIDS as the fastest-growing infectious, infectious epidemic in our nation. Uh, cost society approximately a billion annually, but nobody's really sure of that number because nobody's really sure how many people actually have uh, Lyme disease. But it is absolutely spreading up and down the east coast of the United States like wildfire, and uh, the catastrophic nature of the disease is actually now being fully realized just within the last six months or so, um, two states, Pennsylvania and Virginia, have 
conducted major investigations uh, on a state level trying to find out what's going on. Um, the Roanoke Times in Virginia has uh, just published a major expose on um, how widespread the disease is. It's growing by 500% in some counties. Um, the chair of the task force in Virginia, the state task force that was investigating the, uh, the disease, it was eight out of ten of his uh, family members actually have Lyme disease. So it's oh my a nightmare. So um, let's, um, let's open up the phone lines if people have questions and comments. Jerry Leonard, uh, as we discuss the Lyme disease conspiracy, and we'll get into uh, the possible connection with uh, Plum Island, even Nazi scientists, uh, and whether or not uh, Lyme disease was created in a bioweapons lab. 416-360-0740, that's uh, in the greater Toronto area, and toll-free from just about anywhere. Thunder Bay, Ontario, down to the Carolinas, Maine, clear across to Minnesota, 866-740-4740. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Jerry Leonard is with us, talking about Lyme disease. How does it become so widespread i mean is it once one individual is is bitten by a uh, um, a tick uh yes. does that person become uh, a, a carrier i mean is it is can it be transmitted sexually how is it transmitted from person to person well that's a very good question um it's a question which is the subject of a lot of controversy within uh the lyme medical establishment the uh the experts you know the so-called experts that claimed you couldn't treat Lyme at all with antibiotics, but now claim you can miraculously cure it in a matter of weeks. Um, they claim that it is not sexually transmitted, but if you look at uh, the nature of the uh, spirochete, which causes Lyme disease, it's extremely similar to syphilis, which is, of course, sexually transmitted. Um, the diseases are so um, similar that um, they have a, both have a three-phase infection. You have the uh, first phase, which can often be manifested by uh, Skin problems and then goes into a neuro- neurological phase and can cause all kind of uh, neurocognitive issues. And the bacteria themselves are, are very similar, but Lyme is actually much more invasive. In fact, Willy Bergdorfer, who's um, the spirochete that causes Lyme, is named after him. It's Borrelia burgdorferi. He says that the Lyme disease spirochete is actually much more deadly and dangerous than the syphilis spirochete because it's uh, far more invasive and can infect every major organ of your body. So. If syphilis is sexually transmitted and these organisms are so similar, which they are, um, you got to think that Lyme disease is sexually transmitted. And you have all these women who are giving birth to uh, Lyme-infected babies, etc. It's, it's a public health disaster, as I said before. If left untreated, is it fatal? Yeah, it can be. Um, depends on the strain of the disease you catch and um, your genetic makeup, etc., how strong your immune system is. But uh, people die all the time from Lyme disease. It's usually... You know, not real quick. It can be a very long, 
and drawn out process, but people die from it all the time. My understanding is that also that Lyme disease is a bit of a, uh, a chameleon. I mean, it can present as a, a number of other types of, of illnesses. Um, Lou Gehrig's disease, for example. Right. In fact, this is another similarity to syphilis. Syphilis was called the great imitator because it had so many nonspecific symptoms associated with it. And Lyme disease is called the new great imitator because, as you said, uh, not only causes arthritis, it causes the uh, neurological issues like ALS, MS. It also causes chronic, chronic fatigue syndrome and depression, etc. Now, this is very important because the pharmaceuticals companies who are basically at the top of this uh, conspiracy to leave Lyme patients untreated, uh, these are all billion-dollar markets each. So you think, if you think about the depression or the uh, market for depression is a billion dollars at least. Uh, the market for arthritis is at least a billion dollars. And then you've got the new markets for chronic fatigue syndrome, et cetera. So you've got billions of dollars in symptom treatments in perpetuity, basically for the lifetime of the individual if they can't clear the infection versus, uh, you know, the controversy is how to, how to knock the infection out. If you can knock the infection out, then you're throwing away billions and billions of dollars in profit for the pharmaceuticals industry. Um, so they don't have an interest in knocking out the infection early because they're not going to make money off of it. And, it, and, and if you get to it early, it is re- pretty easy to, uh, to knock out, right? It's just, what, a round of antibiotics? Um, it can be. If it's treated really early and very aggressively with the right antibiotics, you can, uh, you can uh, cure it in some cases, and a lot of cases just knock it down to the point where it doesn't devastate you. Uh, but I would say most of the people do require... Um, so-called long-term antibiotics. Now, by long-term, talking something more than two to four weeks is what, which is what the uh, the Lyme expert, the Lyme experts will tell you is long-term, and you shouldn't need anything past that. But many, many, many people get better and better over the long term uh, with antibiotics, and I'm one of them. I was on antibiotics administered by a world-class expert for um, about four years, and I just kept getting better and better until my doctor was put out of business, and then I had uh, major relapses and had to find antibiotics over the Internet. What do you mean put out of business? Well, if you look at why Lyme Lyme patients aren't getting treated, it's because the people, the doctors that figure out how to treat it are systematically put out of business um, through the state medical boards, and that happened to my doctor as he was treating me. Um, This is happening all over the country, and especially up in Connecticut, where the uh, infection is off the charts. There's uh, there was an article that came out that said only 2% of the doctors in Connecticut, this is at ground zero for the Lyme epidemic, are willing to treat or able to treat Lyme disease, um, which is a disaster. In other words, if the, the state medical board or up here the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons catches wind that a doctor is treating Lyme disease with antibiotics, they'll pull their license? Well, they'll let, they'll let, you treat, they'll let a doctor treat patients for um, several weeks of antibiotics, and then after that they will definitely come after you if you're on their list, and this happens all the time. Um, typically, the cutoff is about four weeks or so. Claiming that it, that would be injurious to a patient is such a prolonged uh, uh, period of dosage. Well, antibiotics uh, can be dangerous. I mean, any drug is dangerous, but the question is, is the disease left untreated worse or more dangerous than the antibiotics? Um, I mean, you don't want to just do this casually. I mean, I was treated for four years, like I said, by an expert, and I got better and better, and, but I seem to be the exception to the case. I responded very well to antibiotics um, with very few side effects, but other people aren't so lucky. Again, it depends on your, gemet- your genetic makeup and your health, et cetera, and how far 
the disease progressed before you were treated. There's, there's a lot of variables involved. Um, but some people don't get any better after, you know, if, they don't, if the disease goes untreated for years or decades, then antibiotics are going to be a, probably diminishing returns. All right, Jerry, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and discuss uh, the connection between Lyme disease and the outbreak which occurred in Connecticut and the Level 4 Bioweapons Lab located just offshore on Plum Island and whether this vector-borne disease is in fact a bioweapons agent. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. We'll also open up the lines and take your calls at 416-360-0740 and toll-free from out of town, 866-744-740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Lyme disease, probably the most political and controversial disease of these times. Again, the bacteria is transmitted from the bite of a tick to its host, which can include animals such as deer, squirrels, raccoons, skunks, small rodents, birds, pets, and people. And research has shown that the bacteria can be transmitted through the placenta. There's even concern that it may be transmitted through blood transfusions. In the U.S. and Europe, where much of the research is being conducted, researchers consider Lyme a larger pandemic than cancer and AIDS, with estimates up to 200,000 new cases a year in the United States alone. And here in Canada, new cases of Lyme are found in every uh, province. So it's being underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And there are restrictions on treatment um, uh, because uh, we have Health Canada and U.S. guidelines. Doctors are restricted from using the long-term antibiotics they used previously, uh, which seem to be very beneficial for many people with, with chronic Lyme. But, I mean, is it, is it political? Well, I mean, what's behind this? Why, why is it being underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed is it because it's such a tricky disease or is there or is there some politics at play here well it's both i mean medical doctors nowadays uh, their practices are largely run by insurance companies and they don't have time to spend with a patient going uh, over their health history for two or three hours in the first you know visit trying to diagnose this incredibly complex disease so um it's it's just not doesn't fit the current medical paradigm, whereas the uh, Lyme literate doctors will often spend a couple hours, like my doctor did with me, on the first visit. So um, this is a very time-intensive disease to understand, and it's a very frustrating one to to, uh, treat because it requires 
uh, very sophisticated antibiotic regimens over the long term, like I said, and um, the doctor's practice is literally going to be on the line if they go over the prescribed limit uh, by these so-called voluntary treatment guidelines. Um, I presented uh, a talk at the uh, Physicians' Roundtable, which is a medical conference, um, about six months or so ago where I, I went over how these so-called treatment guidelines are subverting modern medicine. A lot of people don't understand that um, they've got treatment guidelines for pretty much every disease under the sun. And with respect to Lyme disease, these were drafted um, as so-called voluntary guidelines and reinforced by the CDC. But the doctors who try to uh, treat beyond the recommended antibiotics uh, duration, like I said, find themselves up on charges and they can be uh, destroyed and put out of business. So those guidelines are, in fact, not voluntary. Um, but if you look at the people who write the guidelines, you have a various uh, curious confluence of several major power centers, for example, the pharmaceuticals industry and the insurance industry. Now, the insurance companies make money by not paying out health benefits, so it's not in their interest to pay you know, $100,000 uh, per patient for long-term intravenous antibiotics. And the pharmaceuticals companies make billions of dollars off uh, any one of half a dozen different symptoms that uh, plague Lyme disease sufferers. So these so-called treatment guideline authors are overly represented by um, pharmaceuticals and insurance company consultants. Now, they also have uh, another overriding theme, which is they're uh, overly represented by the biowarfare community. For example, Alan Steer, who was put in charge of uh, the investigation into what was causing this outbreak of rheumatoid arthritis in Polly Murray's town, was a recent graduate of the CDC's biodefense unit that a lot of people don't even know exists. It's called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, or the EIS for short. And if you look closely at the Lyme disease outbreak, you find an EIS agent at every critical juncture. In fact, there's a very good uh, essay written by Elena Cook called Lyme Disease is a Biowarfare Issue. I, I recommend that uh, your listeners Google that. Um, it's a very good overview of how the Epidemic Intelligence Service is controlling this non-response to the Lyme disease epidemic. Also, the, uh, the lead author of the treatment guidelines, uh, which were republished several years ago, is Gary Wormser, and he also lectures on biowarfare agents in his spare time. You can see his lectures on the Internet. In his spare time. It's a hobby, apparently. All right, yeah. let's grab some calls before we get into Plum Island. Tara is in Markham, Ontario. Good morning, Tara. You're on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Tara. Can you hear me? There she is. All right, you're on the line with Jerry Leonard. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, it's been my understanding and my reading that uh, spirochete is a single-celled parasite, not a bacteria. And if it is indeed a single-celled parasite, then um, the Holocarp zapper and certain other parasite cleanses could probably um, eradicate this from the body very easily. Has that not been tried, or have you not looked at this, or do you know well, anything about this? First of all, the spirochete is a bacterium, and unfortunately... Well, as, as I said, my, my reading, from, I mean, I've studied this. It's, it is designated as a single-celled uh, parasite. Well, none of the literature that I've seen, uh, uh, Tara, would, would, uh, would agree with that. But, I mean, maybe perhaps you've seen something that we haven't, uh, uh, Jerry? Well, I mean, if it were that easy to get rid of, people would have come up with treatments for syphilis long ago, and we still don't have effective treatments for tertiary syphilis. So the problem with Lyme disease is, as I said, it burrows, uh, it's a corkscrew-shaped organism, and it burrows into uh, various organs. It goes over the blood-brain barrier, 
and it's also intracellular. So it's extremely pervasive, and it goes into places where antibiotics are very hard to reach because the blood flow is low or because of the blood-brain barrier, and you need specialized antibiotics to be administered to uh, address those issues. For example, some antibiotics are not, uh, cannot act intracellularly. Some antibiotics cannot overcome the blood-brain barrier, et cetera. So um, these Borrelia spirochetes are renowned for causing relapsing diseases. Um, there's a Borrelia that causes relapsing fever, which was studied in the 60s and 70s. And it uh, turns out it, it causes this relapsing phenomenon to occur. You treat it with antibiotics, and it comes back a month later, and you can't get rid of it. Now, you've mentioned alternative treatments. There are various alternative treatments that people are looking into because their doctors are systematically being put out of business. And some of them work, some of them don't. Depends on who you talk to. All right, let's say hello to uh, Dan in Hamilton. Good morning, Dan. Yeah, my question is, 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 where, um, is these ticks that, you know, you see go on animals and stuff like that, and we're human animals, uh, are they like, you know, they they get into the blood and that just like fleas and and uh, bed bugs, can they be transmitted the same type of thing, like you know Lyme disease? You mean vectors other than ticks? Yeah, yeah. That's another controversial point within the uh, the Lyme community. The experts will say that it's only transmitted by this one species of tick, the exited tick, which is uh, not true. In fact, they just discovered. Uh, another type of spirochete, which they suspect may cause an illness like Lyme disease. Um, they just discovered that last week. And uh, there's another Lyme-like uh, bacteria called, it's called Stari, which is southern tick-associated rash illness. And that is vectored by a uh, Lone Star tick. Now, you can't get treated officially, according to the CDC and the, uh, the IDSA guidelines, um, unless you test you're supposed to test positive for this one particular strain, which is vectored um, by the exited tick. Uh, now, the other question is, can it be transmitted by fleas, et cetera? And a lot of people suspect that it can be. Um, but like I said, the experts will tell you that it can't be. So they're trying to restrict the vector, just like they tried to restrict the definition of the disease so that they can prevent people from uh, getting antibiotics treatment. All right, Dan and Hamilton, thank you. Arthur is in Toronto. Good morning, Arthur. I suppose the health star people would say, well, yes, we have a solution for that, but I don't have it, so I don't ever ask how I'm going to ask next time about it. But the solution is when God takes charge and turns this earth into a perfect paradise where people will have no kind of tragedies at all, that will happen pretty soon. That's what the Bible tells you if you look into the Bible. All right, Arthur, thank you for that. Uh, as always, weighing in with a, uh, a biblical interpretation of events. Um, Jerry, the connection between the outbreak and open-air experiments that were taking place on Plum Island, what's the timeline there? Well, we don't have a lot of information on the research that was done at Plum Island. Obviously, it was a secret biological warfare station. Uh, we do know that it was set up by Eric Traub, who was a Nazi insect biowarfare expert, and he went back to Germany after the lab was set up. Um, but, in fact, I FOIA'd, uh, I got a lawyer and tried to uh, get FOIA information from Plum Island, and I got nothing. Um, but we do know they were working on so-called hard ticks there. Uh, we don't know exactly whether they uh, did any research with exited ticks there. But it is curious that uh, the researcher for whom Lyme disease is named, uh, I mentioned his name, Willie Bergdorfer, 
was working with Borrelia organisms in a biowarfare lab uh, in Montana, which is called the Rocky Mountain Lab. In fact, throughout the 1950s, uh, he had been injecting exited ticks with Borrelia spirochetes. And lo and behold, in the 1970s, outside of an outdoor test range, um, exited ticks start spreading uh, Borrelia and causing Lyme disease. So we don't know exactly what went on at Plum Island, but we do know what was going on at other biowarfare research facilities. And they were uh, injecting ticks of the type that cause Lyme disease with Borrelia. So, I mean, you're, you're, obviously we're speculating here, but connect the dots for me. Were they, did, did, they, did they discover this, um, this bacteria and then, and then uh, and, and weaponize it and release it uh, into the general population? Were they, were they aware of this uh, health risk? Uh, we're trying to find some sort of a, uh, uh, not a vaccine, but uh, some sort of a treatment for it, and, and then it, it escaped and got out into the general population? What do you think happened? Uh, well, that's the question everybody wants answers to, but I do suspect that a lot of the politics involve vaccine research um, and for example the uh, the CDC published a paper in 1998 I believe or 1999 where they they described how the uh, vaccine would not be marketable unless the infection rates increased so I think vaccine politics politics play a large role in this but as far as uh, was it deliberately released or not um, we do know as I mentioned, that uh, Willy Bergdorfer was infecting ticks with Borrelia agents. We do know that uh, the military was studying the transmission of these Borrelia agents and, in fact, deliberately infected soldiers as far back as the 1920s with uh, various methods, including uh, natu- you know, putting the disease agent in the ticks and letting the ticks bite soldiers. And they also directly injected the Borrelia from uh, rats that, were, uh, that they allowed the ticks to feed on. Etc. So there's been a long history of human experiments with Borrelia, and all of a sudden we have this Borrelia disease outbreaking right outside of uh, Plum Island, which did outdoor tick experiments. And by the way, the Borrelia organism uh, is the same is a similar type to what Willie Bergdorfer was studying out at Rocky Mountain Labs. Also of interest is that um, the first person to culture the uh, the Lyme spirochete in a in a cell culture was uh, Alan Barber, and he worked in the same biowarfare lab that Willie Bergdorfer Bergdorfer did. And now Alan Alan Barber is the director of a major biowarfare lab at the University of California, Irvine, and he is currently, uh, he just got a grant from the NIH uh, to develop and test a Lyme disease disease vaccine. So biowarfare permeates every aspect of the ongoing investigation and the so-called non-response to the investigation. Now, the CDC's uh, biowarfare expert, Alan Steer, and his uh, colleagues could have stopped this epidemic in its tracks. They could have said, you know, this is a major disease. It's, it's bacteriological. We can fight it with antibiotics, et cetera, but they chose not to do that. They dreamed up every reason under the sun not to get, let people uh, be treated with antibiotics, and as a result, we have a major epidemic. Let's go to uh, Castor Center and uh, pick it up with Virginia. You're on the air, Virginia. Go ahead. I have had tick bite fever twice in South Africa. I have fingers that two of them are very bad, and they're looking at them and trying to find out if they're rheumatoid arthritis, and there's not... Nobody will sort of tell me. Well, Jerry's not a doctor, but did you have a question for him? Well, that's very curious. 
I live uh, not far from the U.S. border. The U.S. has it, but we don't. And ticks cross the border, and fl- animals fly the border. Right. For quite a while, they were claiming that you know you had, for example, in Maine, et cetera, you have uh, the burgeoning epidemic, and as soon as you cross the border, they were uh, not allowed to report the cases in Canada. They claimed, as you said, you know, as if the birds stopped at the border. Uh, which is a complete joke. It's part of the ongoing uh, travesty of this disease. Are the Political ticks disease. in South Africa the same as the ticks that are affected here? Well, I'm sorry, what was the question? She's the asking ticks? whether the ticks in South Africa would be the same as uh, the ticks here. Would they? Is it possible that, that uh, they're carrying the same bacteria? Well, that's a very interesting question, because I mentioned Willy Bergdorfer was injecting uh, ticks with Borrelia agents in Rocky Mountain Labs in Montana, and he was getting ticks from Africa and uh, importing them, all kind of exotic ticks, and was injecting them with uh, various disease agents. In fact, Willy Bergdorfer um, published methods on mass-infecting ticks. Um, he was trying to develop assembly line techniques so that they could infect ticks for disease transmission experiments. Yeah, uh, thanks for the call, Virginia. The idea of uh, exposing uh, people, in this case the general population, uh, and then denying them the correct treatment sounds eerily familiar. It sounds like the Tuskegee, uh, um, the Tuskegee experiment, syphilis experiments, which went on for like forty years. Right. Are there other parallels there? Yeah. In fact, I mean, we just learned last week more about the nature of the Tuskegee experiment. Now, this, this experiment was exposed in the 1970s, and here we are in. Uh, 2011, and uh, a professor named Susan Reverby has discovered that there was a whole aspect to the Tuskegee experimentation that we never knew about. We'd always been told that it was uh, a group of uh, people in rural Alabama were denied treatment for syphilis, which is a spirochete disease, like I said, and that there was no uh, deliberate infection of these people. It was just a treatment denial exercise. They wanted to monitor the immune systems, and they wanted to see how the disease uh, destroyed the bodies of the victims so they could develop uh, treatments for it. Um, well, they just found out Susan Reverby published a uh, paper showing that not only was it not restricted to the United States, it was uh, involving active infection. They were uh, infecting prisoners with uh, various uh, forms of syphilis. They were either injecting it or injecting prostitutes and then having them contracted sexually, etc. And the doctor who conducted those experiments in Guatemala came back to the United States and did uh, transmission experiments in U.S. prisons, for example, Sing Sing. So there's a whole aspect of deliberate infection uh, with the Tuskegee experiment. Now, uh, I just published a major article in the Public Health Alert where I claim what they're doing is conducting uh, the Tuskegee experiment part two, and they're doing it through these treatment guidelines. I call it Tuskegee through treatment guidelines. And it does, in fact, represent the institutionalization of the Tuskegee experiment. This is happening on an everyday basis now on a national scale. It's an everyday occurrence. Uh, yeah, and for those that, that um, find it hard to believe that their government uh, or those various agencies that are entrusted to protect our health might be targeting civilians. I mean, you, you mentioned Tuskegee, which went on for 40 years. This wasn't some you know throwback to the 30s and 40s when we didn't know better. This experiment uh, ran until 1972. It was like one of the largest, longest-running clinical trials, something like 40 years. Right. Uh, and then you have, uh, also back in the uh, the 30s or 40s, um, in I believe in Chicago, where prisoners were exposed, uh, I think unknowingly, to the malaria 
uh, disease. Uh, and it was that experiment that the Nazis that were on trial at Nuremberg pointed to and said, well, we got our ideas from you. Right. They, they claimed that they were inspired by various experiments that were going on in U.S. prisons, which is true. I mean, it was fairly common, and it went all the way through the MK Ultra testing throughout the 50s and 60s. And we, in fact, imported uh, some of the Nazi experimenters, including uh, Eric Traub, to conduct the experiments and oversee them. Um, as far as you know, this taking place at the highest levels of the government, we're talking about the Tuskegee experiment and the, uh, the Guatemala effort. Um, the Lancet, in this, this past December, published an article, and they stated, uh, quote, referring to this uh, latest revelation, quote, if this were fiction, the study's investigators would have been the archetypal mad scientists, but the study was conducted by no less prestigious a group than the United States Public Health Service and funded by the National Institute of Health, unquote. So this took place at the highest levels of the government. Now, the New York Times just last week came out with this article and made similar claims. They said, quote, the highest medical and legal officials of the American government and experts at Harvard and other top medical schools approved venereal disease experiments on people in the 1940s, which led to the deliberate infection of Guatemalan prisoners and mental patients with syphilis to test penicillin. Quote, the, the ethical errors, I like that statement, the ethical errors were made by a startling array of public health luminaries, the Surgeon General, the Attorney General, Army and Navy medical officials, the President of the American Medical Association, the President of the National Academy of Sciences, and experts from Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and the U Universities of Pennsylvania and Rochester, etc. Unquote. So this, is going, this is what I claim is going on now. This is the NIH. They never stopped. In fact, the Tuskegee experiment ended in... 1973, like you said, and lo and behold, that's about the same time period that Tuskegee Phase Two was ramping up with Lyme disease, and it's gone on for almost another 40 years. Uh, except this time they're targeting the general population as part right. of this. Uh, this and instead uh, of restricting people from getting uh, treatment from doctors, they're restricting doctors from treating the patients. So you're not restricted from going to a doctor, but your doctor is restricted from treating you. And this has happened to me. I know what it's like to be denied and have a doctor look you in the face and say, hey, I know you got Lyme disease, I know you were getting better, but I just can't give you more than a couple of weeks worth of antibiotics because they're watching me. All right, let's say hello to Chris in Grand Island, New York this morning. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Hello, uh, thanks for taking my call. How do you know if you have this, uh, how do you get diagnosed and know for sure that you have the Lyme disease and then what are some of the symptoms of it? All right. And also, and also I'd like to know, uh, then can it be treated with the antibiotics? All right, we covered some of this ground earlier, Chris, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good opportunity to, uh, to sort of uh, reset and repeat. Uh, so, Jerry, uh, go ahead. Yeah, that's a very good question. Of course, the one unequivocal symptom of Lyme disease is the bullseye rash. That is specific to Lyme disease. If you get a bullseye rash, you probably got bit by a tick and you probably have Lyme disease. Um, so you need to get treated right away. Now, the longer you wait to get treated, the worse off you, you can be. Um, everybody agrees on this one fact, that if you get treated as early as possible and hit it as hard as you can early on, you'll be better off. Um, now, the problem is, like I said, depending on who you talk to, only 30 to 40% of the people actually have the bullseye rash or see the bullseye rash. If you get bit on your, on your uh, head and you're covered with hair there, you might not see the bullseye rash. So... Um, so this is where the big problem is, all these nonspecific symptoms that I described earlier, like uh, neurocognitive impairment, uh, you know, the chronic fatigue sy syndrome, the, MLS, or the ALS, the MS-type symptoms where you 
uh, develop these neurological issues, they are much harder to diagnose uh, as Lyme disease. But a lot of people do respond to the antibiotics, um, which is your first clue that there is some kind of underlying bacterial infection. Um, if you start to exhibit some of these symptoms and you get are fortunate enough to get treated with antibiotics and you start to see an improvement, then um, there's a good chance if it's not Lyme disease, it could be another bacterial infection because there are several other bacterial infections um, that also cause these uh, neurological problems. For example, uh, there's an organism called Babesia and there's another one called Bartonella that can cause uh, some of these uh, neurocognitive effects. Is it, uh, it, does it, we call it the great imitator, does it, uh, can it also imitate various forms of encephalitis? Uh, you can get in inflammation of the brain and things like that. It's all kind of uh, brain problems that, that you can get, lesions on the brain, etc. Once these spirochetes enter the brain, is it too late? No, it just makes it very difficult. You've got to have antibiotics that can overcome the uh, blood-brain barrier, and you've got to administer them for a long time. Uh, one of the problems when you're treating uh, an infection with antibiotics is some of them only work when the cells are dividing and they disrupt that... Uh, the replication process, so you have to have antibiotics there during the uh, division. So um, the, the spirochete, which causes Lyme disease, is a very slowly replicating organism. It can take weeks to months, which is one of the problems uh, with getting it cultured in cell, in cell cultures. It's a very difficult process, and if anything uh, goes wrong during that process, it won't work. So that's the fact that it's so pervasive and is uh, such a slowly replicating organism mean uh, you have to get antibiotics to the point where the uh, microbe is hiding and uh, for example you've got to overcome the blood-brain barrier if it's in your brain and you may have to have an intracellular antibiotic as well so not all antibiotics have all these properties why you need an expert to administer them. All right, Chris in Grand Island, New York, thank you for the call. Hope to hear from you again. And uh, Jerry Leonard, uh, thank you for this. Um, uh, are you working on a, a book, perhaps, on, on Lyme disease? Actually, yeah, I just uh, published a major expose in the Public Health Alert in July and then another one in this current month of September. And they actually devoted the entire issue uh, of the September issue to this issue. And I've uh, someone has offered to turn it into a book for me. So uh, hopefully within the next month or so, that'll be available. Excellent. And in the meantime, we have um, your other uh, works, Hitler is Winning and The Perfect Assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, The CIA and Mind Control, uh, which are available through Amazon.com. Final question. Uh, I mentioned off the uh, the top of this hour that uh, a um, uh, the publisher of uh, Vitality, Ma Vitality Magazine here in, the, in Ontario was on this program uh, a year ago. I think during May, it was uh, Lyme uh, Disease Awareness Month last year. And uh, she had uh, sought information from the uh, federal health minister in this country who told her at the time uh, that it was a... She wanted, to, she wanted details on the number of victims and sufferers and so forth in Canada. She, he, she was denied that. She said it was a national security issue. Does that make any sense? Well, actually, yeah. You mentioned the, the documentary Under Our Skin, which is an outstanding documentary. I recommend all your listeners to uh, at least watch the trailer on YouTube, and now the whole movie is available on uh, Hulu.com. It's Under Our Skin. It goes through the whole travesty of how these patients are being systematically misdiagnosed and mistreated. Um, but when they were interviewing Willie Bergdorfer, who was the namesake of Lyme disease, who worked at the Rocky Mountain Lab injecting Borrelia into ticks, uh, they were interviewing at his house, and all of a sudden they got a knock on the door. And this is on the, 
the website for Under Our Skin, and they, somebody from the Rocky Mountain Labs, uh, I think it was the NIH, actually banged on the door and said, Willie Bergdorfer is not allowed to talk to you without us being present. Um, so it makes you ask, what, what does he really know about Lyme disease? And he has hinted on film that he knows more than he's telling. So it is absolutely a national security issue. And what sort of uh, arrangement or agreement does the Canadian government have with the U.S. government where the Canadian federal health minister is not allowed to divulge? Well, that's a good question. You have the, uh, the infamous studies up at McGill University where the CIA uh, basically put women on LSD for months at a time and gave them electroshock therapy, et cetera, to the point where they, they didn't know who they were and had to be uh, re-toilet trained. Yeah, that wasn't a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy fact. I mean, there have been yeah. out-of-court settlements uh, in which, you know, they, they've agreed that that happens. So that's... Right. So that. There is cooperation. All right, Jerry. Um, uh, thank you. one for... more thing real yes, quick? Yes, please. Uh, the previous caller had mentioned, uh, how do I get diagnosed? So it brings up the whole issue of how accurate the tests are, which is a major problem. Um, now, this is a very controversial issue. Um, just because you don't test positive for Lyme disease does not mean you don't have Lyme disease. In fact, the tests are all based around one or two strains of Lyme disease, and there are uh, many others. As I mentioned, they just found a new one last week. Um, not only are the, the strains based around a very small subset of the uh, spirochete, um, they've dumbed the test down to the point where it's almost meaningless, and they did this for vaccine research. That's a long, that's a long story, but you may test positive for Lyme disease, with this one strain, and if you don't have certain, they're called bands, then according to the Lyme experts, you can't have Lyme disease. That's a major problem. Um, you have to find someone that knows where to get the best test and knows how to interpret it. And even if you turn up uh, negative, that doesn't mean you don't have Lyme disease. All right, very important to note that. Thank you, Jerry, for this uh, important information, and we'll talk again. Okay, thank you. All right, I should also mention Jerry Leonard is uh, featured prominently in an upcoming episode of the TV show, The Conspiracy Show, on Manchurian Candidates. So uh, stay tuned for that, and also check out the website, theconspiracyshow.com. All right, a brand new uh, song uh, written, performed, recorded, produced for The Conspiracy Show uh, by a band, a local band, uh, called Who Stole the Cookies? And it's, um, it's a song based on uh, the, the biblical passage that I end this show on that comes from the book of Matthew each night. Uh, uh, don't be afraid, there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed. We're going to debut the, sh- the, the song uh, when we come back. It's called Nothing Concealed. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in just a moment. Oh, that's all right. Do you want to play the song now? All right. Well, we're going to do that. We'll do that right now. We'll um, we're going to debut for you uh, again. This song it's by uh, Who Stole the Cookies, and uh, my good friend Nick Sotirio. Thank you for this. And it's uh, it's called Nothing Concealed. <laughs> Yeah, I bet it's 
There you go. Nick Soterio from Who Stole the Cookies. Thanks to the whole band for that. Nothing Concealed, and we'll play that from time to time uh, on the program. And, of course, they also composed uh, Stolen Cookies, uh, which will become a permanent fixture, one of our uh, uh, our songs that we'll play here on the show. All right. Uh, next week on the program, uh, Robert Galen Ross, author of The Elite Serial Killers of Lincoln, JFK, MLK and RFK uh, will be along to tell us about uh, the shadowy men behind the trigger men of uh, some of the more infamous assassinations throughout history. And uh, we'll also, of course, have our panel of uh, 16-year-olds, including the birthday girl, Vanessa Green, who will be uh, sitting in on the program live next week. Hope you'll be along with me for the ride. In the meantime... Don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and come at home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.